0: Father God, uh, we have much to be grateful for this day. And we've come together as your people in this expression of your bride, known as West Park. And we come, and as we have sung, we, we uh, I trust have joy in our heart. And we've come to bless you. And we know that you will bless us. And so would you be high and lifted up amongst us, And would you speak to us in personal and powerful ways that only you can do and help your servant who's not worthy nor capable of the task at hand. I need your help, Lord. I ask for it. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen and amen. Open your Bibles as we continue in our series on the book of Hebrews called Anchored and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to begin at verse 19, and let me just begin by saying this. Verse 19 represents a kind of a turning point in the book of uh, Hebrews. Uh, All that has kind of come before that we've been studying for the last 10 weeks or so regarding the Old Testament system of sacrifices and symbols and rituals is now kind of settled And now we're going to look at the ramifications of that reality. So remember the book of Hebrews written to kind of persecuted Jewish people in the first century. And the writer is saying to these Jewish people, hey, I know you're under pressure, but don't go back to where you've been. There's no life in that. Hold fast to Christ, keep moving forward in your faith. And all of the precursor of Hebrews one through chapter 10 to verse 18, and now we kind of change, the pericope changes here. So hear the word of the Lord. We're going to start to read at uh, Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, and of course, you know in scripture when you see therefore, it means, okay, something has been said, and now something is going to be presented. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as the day as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. The first three verses that we read there really summarize the last ten weeks. So let me just go over this. When I was in high school, I had a teacher, and he used to constantly say, uh, "Review is the uh, f- is the mother of learning." And we're going to review, students. Review is the mother of learning. Uh, one day when he said that, I said, "And it's the father of boredom," and it came out a little louder than I had hoped for. He didn't appreciate it. So hopefully this review will be the mother of learning and not the father of boredom, okay? So let's just, let's just go in three statements, all that we've studied. We're gonna encapsulate that. And that's what the writer of Hebrews does. The writer of Hebrews just says, okay, let me just tie a ribbon on where we've been, and then the writer is going to say, now because of that, this, okay? So let's do the because of that first. Uh, the first thing is I want you to remember is that we have full access to the presence of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We, we have confidence. We are allowed to step into the holy places. You know, we don't get close and then get turned away. Uh, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, uh, you'll know maybe if you've ever walked the, the, uh, the, t- the temple tunnels, okay? So on the western wall, there's a tunnel that starts at the Wailing Wall and goes underground and it goes under uh, neighborhoods and everything, and it comes up at the northwest entrance to the Temple Mount. Now, anybody here claustrophobic, doesn't like being underground? You won't like this because it's underground and it's very tight. and uh, And I don't like either of those, but I've led six groups to Israel, so you have to sort of toughen it up and pretend like you're not scared to death, and uh, and do that. And one time. We walked all the way down, and I'm like, Lord, get me to the end of this thing. I just don't like this at all. And you're well underground, and it's narrow, and some places you've got to go like this and kind of duck your head. If there was an earthquake, you'd be in eternity very quickly. And we get to the other end, and we go up the stairs to come out, and the door's locked. What a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> Help me get... And so now we've got to go back... It was a Friday, they'd locked the door because all the Muslims are going up to the Temple Mount for their day of prayer. And so they locked that door because they all go up mostly on that northeast gate up onto the Temple Mount. And they don't want Jews and Christians and all the Muslims, they don't want the conflict, any chance of conflict. So they locked the door. So then we had to turn around and go all the way back. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know what? We, we have confidence when we go to the Father, the door is open we go right into his presence. The second thing is we have full access by way of Christ, right, as sufficient sacrifice, once and for all. We saw there at the last part of verse 19, it says that you know, we have confidence to enter the holy places, how, tells us right there, by the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, through his flesh, this is propitiation, nice theological word, which means basically, by way of Christ, the wrath of God has been appeased. It's been dealt with. Christ's sacrifice means God is propitious towards us. He acts within his character to grant forgiveness and a pardon to us. That's what God does. And, and the propitiation, you know, some, some people get this a little confused, but let me just say this. You know, it doesn't procure his love. He's always loving. It only renders him uh, consistent with his character of love, and then he grants a pardon to us. And, and, you know, sometimes I hear people say this. I hear preachers get up and say, you know, God's not angry towards sin. Yeah, actually, he is. He's unhappy with sin. used to be an old sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Remember that old sermon? Anybody ever heard that sermon? You probably can look it up on the Internet. But what you have to remember is God, his anger is not an irrational lack of self-control, right? If you want to see irrational lacks of of self-control, I've got, I'm not sure whether it's one word or two words, but it's YouTube. (laughs) Because you can find lots of acts of irrational self-control. You know, the I'm mad, kick the dog kind of self-control. That's not God, right? That's not God. His anger is... Basically, his settled opposition to sin. I don't like sin, God says. You know, it's just, you know, I, he has a holy nature about him. And so such opposition to sin cannot simply be dismissed out of hand. You know, just with the way of, of a hand. That's why 1 John 2.2, 2, if you want a reference, 1 John 2.2, 2, he is the, this is Christ, he is the propitiation of our sins he turns away the wrath of god and not only ours the verse tells us but also the sins of the whole world get placed upon christ that's who christ is he's made amends for us and then the third thing i want you to notice there is that christ is also our redeemer and he is our intercessor and he is our mediator All of those things, because it tells us in verse 21, we read, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, right? We have a great high priest. He's our redeemer, he's our mediator, and he's our intercessor. He, he, He meets with the Father on our behalf. He intercedes for us. And you know, remember the hopefulness that we read way back in Hebrews chapter four. I don't know if you remember that. It tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to, does anybody know what it says next? Sympathize with our weaknesses. Because Jesus is more familiar with the pain and difficulty in your life than any high priest could be. Way more familiar. Christ is a suffering Savior. As a child, he suffers. Read Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Because of his family, Mark chapter 3, he suffers. Uh, Because of the crowd's unbelief, Mark chapter 9, he suffers. Because of the disciples' lack of response, where he just goes, oh my goodness gracious. Mark chapter 8, he suffers. Of course, he suffers at the hands of the religious leaders, Matthew chapter 12. We see that the scriptures replete with that. We know he suffers at his death. He's inwardly troubled. He's betrayed by one of his closest friends. If you've ever felt betrayed, Jesus knows what that's like. He's humiliated, hanging on a cross, virtually naked, crucified, separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So our high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows whatever it is you're up against this morning, Jesus knows He knows. And if you go back to chapter 7, verse 25, you might just want to write this down. He is also able to save the uttermost, meaning he can even save you from the situation you're in today since he always lives to make, here's the word, intercession for them. Jesus gets in between. He makes intercession for us. He invites you to where he already is. When I was uh, just turned 17 years old, my uh, best friend Brian, his mother took very ill. And uh, the interesting thing was Brian's parents were my parents' best friends. So my parents did all these things with Brian's parents, and Brian's mom and my mom were best friends. And Brian and I became really good friends. So, He used to spend a lot of time at our house, I used to spend a lot of time, they had a cottage and they always invited me there, so we were really good buddies. And his mom took very ill, she was in the hospital, she got sicker and sicker and sicker and we knew things were not very good and so Brian came to spend a few days at our house and we were out, we had a a backyard pool and we were out at the pool one afternoon having some fun and all of a sudden, you know, around the fence into the backyard came his dad and I could tell by the look on his face, it was not good. It was bad. And I said, hi, and he said, hi, and he said, maybe I need to just talk to Brian by, his, by himself. So I went in the house. My mother was in the house crying because his dad had already talked to my mom. His mom had died. So at my house, his dad sat Brian down there at the table on the, on the pool deck and told him that his mom had died. And, you know, I'm 17. I'm as, I'm as dumb as a hammer at the time. And uh, so... His dad said, well, I gotta go, I got things to do, and Brian said, well, I'm just gonna stay here. So I walked back out into the backyard, and I said this to my friend Brian. I said, I'm really sorry, Brian. And then, you know, you don't know what to say. So I say, I I know how you feel, or I know how you must feel. And he says, what do you think he says? No, you don't. You don't have any idea how how I feel. That was middle of August. The last week in November, my mom died months away and I went up to Brian and I said Brian I remember what you said to me on our pool deck and you were right I had no idea none whatsoever I had no reference point for how you felt but the reality is Jesus knows amen he knows You can go to him and say, "Uh, uh, Father, you know, you don't have to say, uh, you probably don't get this, but let me just tell you something. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Some of you will get that at Swiss Chalet at lunch. (laughs) So we have full access to God by way of Jesus who's interceding and mediating for us. So that's where we've been these last weeks. So then, how do we respond? How do we respond? Look at verse 22. Those first three verses there, 19, 20, 21, they're sort of, the writer says, therefore, and then there's that parenthetical sort of insert reminding us of where we've been. And then verse 22, you could take out 19, 20, 21 and just say, therefore, now verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So how do we respond to this reality? How do we respond to it today? Today or Monday, when you get some news or something, how do you respond? The first thing is, you draw near to God in confidence. You draw near to God in confidence. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk nowadays, especially coming out of COVID, about uh, you know, s- space. You're in my space. You ever, you, ever, you ever been the product of a close talker? You know, somebody that gets right up and you're like, you're backing up and they're moving forward and you're backing up and they're moving forward, right? Uh, sociologists say that, uh, you know, zero to 20 inches is reasonable for married couples, right? Gotta have a baby, you gotta get close. I'll move on. <laughs> Approximately one and a half to three feet for good friends and family members, Right? You have a little more distance if you're a family member, you're a couple, you know, uh, you know brothers and sisters. You know, you're used to getting close. and You interact on a close level, right? Uh, and then, you know, three to 10 feet for casual acquaintances and coworkers. Somebody you don't know, and especially today with COVID and everything, four feet or more for a complete stranger. You know, if you're somewhere and all of a sudden somebody comes right up, you're like, ooh, this is kind of strange. John 13, 23. Interesting little verse. It's about the Apostle John. It says one of his disciples whose Jesus loved was reclining, leaning on Jesus' side. The upper room. Some translations say he's leaning on Jesus' bosom. He's that close, he's just right up against him. He's drawing near in confidence to Jesus. You know, I have a daughter who lives in Sydney, Australia, and she's got two of the cutest kids on the face of the earth named Hank and Winnie. I was going to bring a picture, but, you know, then you'd all be just thinking about them all week. So my daughter Riley and my son-in-law Chris and Hank and Winnie, when we are at the Toronto airport, you know, and you're in all those cars, you know, everybody's beeping at you, and the guy's going, keep going, keep going, you know, and you're edging forward. And then we look over and we see them coming out of the airport and we maybe haven't seen them for six months or a year. And you know what I want to do more than anything? What do you think I want to do? I want to hold them close. Because I'm their father. I'm Popsy, Hanky Boy, Winnie. They can draw near, we can draw near to God. On your worst day, in your loneliest moment, God invites you into the fullness of his presence. Amen? It's astounding. Secondly, what do we do? How do we respond? We hold fast to our hope. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold fast to your hope. We've studied all of this about Jesus being sufficient and eternal and supreme in what he's done. So we can hold hold fast to our hope without wavering for he whose promise is faithful. The great gift of of Christmas is hope. Hope which gives us confidence in God, in his ultimate triumph and in his goodness and love which nothing can shake. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he knows of what he writes, he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more, exceeding an eternal weight of glory. We're just passing through. You know what I think Satan wants to do in many of our lives? You know, the writer's saying, hold fast to hope. You know what Satan wants to do? He wants to pry hope from your hands. Because if you were making a cake called faith, one of the ingredients would be hope. He wants to pry hope from your hands and from your heart. Faith fuels our hope, and he wants to wreck that. Isaiah 43, one and two, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine, period. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Hold fast to the hope. Of course, Philippians 1.6, we know that verse. We recite it often, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will see it unto what? Completion. He'll get you home. Number three, what do we do? What do we do because of what Christ has done? We make this decision. I've personalized this, right? Cultivate Christ's likeness and reject divisiveness. Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another. Now let me just stop there. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Usually when you say this, oh, I'll tell you, so-and-so came over and they stirred things up. That's generally not a good thing, right? Well, every time we get together with this couple, oh, things get stirred up. You know, whenever we have, you know, whenever we talk about this, things get stirred up. But this is a different kind of stirred up. Let's keep reading. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You know what Satan's strategy is in most churches? It's pretty easy. Division. In the Old Testament, you know what we called it? Murmuring. Isn't that a great word? Stop your murmuring. In fact, the, the Bible tells us that, that God, disc, uh, God abhors discord amongst the brethren. You ever done that? You ever created division in your church? Amongst the brethren. Stir up one another. To what? To love and good works and encouraging one another. That's how you just stir people up. In our home, and we raising our children. We had three kids. They're all growing now. They're all married. They all love Jesus more in spite of us than because of us. God was so kind. But we had a number of Family rules, family slogans that we live by in our home, imperfectly, without a doubt. One of the key ones that we had in our home with our kids was this, build and encourage. Build and encourage. And we would say to our kids when they said something to their brother or to their sister, hey, did that build and encourage? No. Right? We would say that didn't build and encourage. Why is that so important? Because the world is designed to take people and to crush them and discourage them. In any way the world can. The prince of the power of the air, he wants, to, he wants to crush people and discourage them. So in our home, we would say to our kids, hey, you got to build and encourage, man. That didn't build and encourage. We're here to build and encourage. What if you decided this morning as a member of the West Park family, that every single interaction you will have with another Christian will pour blessing into their spiritual tank. You'll do exactly that. You'll stir up people to love and good works and encourage one another. What if you said, you know, I- I'm recasting my commitment to brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians five eleven. he writes that very thing, encourage one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen, and people are always listening. You know, it's the old joke about having roast preacher for lunch. Roast church for lunch. Your kids hear that. Your kids hear that. A friend of mine started a church in, uh, in the south, and uh, they were meeting in a daycare center. And uh, he said, you know, they love to worship, but the smell in the daycare center on Sundays wasn't conducive to worship. I'll just leave it at that. And so somebody said, hey, there's a church building up on this road, and it looks a bit unkept. Like maybe they're, maybe they're going, you know, maybe they're closing up, or maybe they're done. You, you should go up. Maybe we could, you know, see if we could use it or buy it or rent it. So, my friend went up and he looked at this church building. Of course, it was all, nobody was there, and the grass was kind of long looking. It looked kind of unkept. And, and so he, he looked around and he thought, well, I wonder who. So, he went right across the road from the church. There was houses on the other side of the street. And uh, he picked a house. He knocked on the door, and a man came to the door and he said, Hey, he said, Hi. He said, I'm just wondering. He said, this church here, looks like it's closed up. Do you know anything about it? And the guy said, yep. He said, uh, well, what do you know about it? And he said this, I know they fight all the time. That's what he said. And so my friend said, oh, that's, that's probably not good. He goes, nope. He said, you ever go there? He said, I went once. And he says, what was, what was it like? And he said, oh, I didn't go for a service. It was on fire. That's the only time you went over to the church was to see the fire. He says, Oh, so you probably wouldn't go again? He said, Well, if it catches on fire, I'd probably go again. (laughs) But he said, Yeah, he said, they're pretty well out of business. He said, It's a bivocational pastor. And he said, I think he's a truck driver and he does that on Sundays, but he said, It's just a handful of people. My friend, actually, they did buy that building and they grew their church there. But they were known as people that fight a lot, they went out of business. Hmm. You know, the church, the, the church is called the what of Christ? Does anybody know the, the bride of Christ? Let me ask you this. You ever been at a wedding and you said to the groom, well, congratulations, your bride. She looks a little bit heavy in that dress. I expect if you did that, that would be completely inappropriate, and it would be. So when you ding your church, you're taking a shot at his bride. Do you hear me? Now I'm preaching. And it grieves the groom. This, I got news for you. Are you ready? This is an imperfect church. Did you know that? Do you know how I know that? because they hired me to preach it. But I, I don't know if you know this. This is a great church. It's a great church. And it's a church that Christ loves so much that in his vision in eternity future, he died for West Park Church. So I exhort you, I exhort you to to esteem and protect and serve and pray for and give to that which Christ died for. And there is something immeasurably powerful when the world sees sacrificial love in a local church. It's, it's just so powerful. It's irresistible. Can we say this morning, can can, can we say this, you know what, we're we're gonna start afresh and anew. We're gonna love and care for and we're gonna esteem this church as never before. Is that a deal, amen? Amen. Can we make a deal this morning? Number, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. Now this verse has received a a lot of publicity in the last five years or so. Here's what I wanna say. What does that mean? I show up at family meetings. I show up at family meetings. This is a family meeting, Sunday mornings. The family of God gets together to worship the king. I love the story of Francis Fenelon. Francis Fenelon was the the court preacher for uh, King Louis of France in the 17th century. One Sunday, the king shows up at church and all of his attendants and all the fanfare they arrive at the chapel for the service and the only people there are the king and all of his you know entourage and francis Fenelon, who was the preacher none of the people were there and the king said to Fenelon, what does this mean what is what is going on here and he said your majesty I published that you would not be in attendance at church today in order that your majesty might see who serves God in truth and who simply flatters the king. So if the king ain't there, we ain't going. Come on Sundays. You you know, I've been involved in ministry 30 years and had the privilege to interact with a lot of people, a lot of families. And I can tell you this, and I'll say this, then I'll move on, but I want to say this. No family has ever no parents have ever said to me you know if we had a chance to raise our kids again one of the things we we would do different is we had our kids in church too much never happened now i know i'm preaching to the choir because you actually happen to be here but are you here consistently regularly because i've had parents say to me you know our kids are teenagers they got no friends at church, no, no friends in the youth group. Hmm. Did you bring them to kids' church? And I don't know if you know this, the kids' ministry here is unbelievable. It is outstanding. No, we never did that. Did, did you get them to come to youth group, you know? No. Well, how come? Well, they were involved in hockey, gymnastics, soccer, it was Sunday mornings, you know, so we had to miss church a lot. What you celebrate is what you replicate. Let me keep moving. Worship is better together. This is why I want you to know why you come to family meetings. I'm gonna give you a few reasons, okay? Worship is better together. Worship is better together. Many people say, are you nervous preaching? You know, and I always say, yeah, I wanna be a bit nervous, I need God's help in this. And some Sunday mornings, I'll tell you, I feel tired and I feel unworthy and some Sundays I feel like, man, I should have studied more, and I feel just inadequate. This morning I drove here, and I get up early on Sunday mornings. I got here, I went into the office, I looked over my message. Then I have to come in here for a mic check. I came here, I sat right by Rick at the sound booth there, and I sat down there. And Madeline wanted to sing a song one more time. In The, war, the last song you hear is beautiful, but she sang this, and she sang it again, I was reminded, I wrote it down. And she saying this, blessed are those who bend their knee and fix their gaze on Jesus. And I was like, thank you, Lord. That just filled my tank. Hearing their voices lifted to the Lord. And then when I came in here this morning and sat here and you together as God's family, worship is so much better together. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's so good. Martin Luther said this, at home in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is collectively, this is as a group, teaching and admonishing one another with hymns and spiritual songs. We have to do that together. Another reason why we gather together at family meetings is because others benefit from your presence. Others need you here. You say, well, I don't need to be there, you know? I've had people over the years say, I want you to tell me, does the Bible say to be a Christian you have to go to church? And I'll say, you know, to be married, you never have to go home again, but it won't be much of a marriage, right? But others benefit from your presence here. You have no idea. And and we've read here, it says, you know, to encourage each other and and cheer each other on. I love what William Ward said. Let me read you this quote. Flatter me, and I may not believe you. Criticize me, and I may not like you. Ignore me, and I may not forgive you. Encourage me, and I will never forget you. Others need you here. They see you, and they say, oh, there's so-and-so. And they know that they're going to get a a warm handshake or a hug if you're close or a word of encouragement. So good to see you. And you have no idea what people need. Also, we get together because it's a time of spiritual growth. i got to hurry. i got to hurry here. It's a time of spiritual growth. Acts 2.42. We're familiar with that. A lot of churches have named themselves 2.42 because it gives this picture of the church, right? Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. If you come here every Sunday, let me just say this, and you are not experiencing spiritual growth, then can I get you to ask yourself two questions? I want you to ask this, am I engaging on Sunday morning? You know, I look out and I see some of you are engaged, you're taking notes, you got your Bible, or whatever, and, you, and you're looking, and, and, and then I hear stories, you know, I'm out in the foyer after the service, and people say, you know, we, you know in our group, we were talking about you know, something in the message, and you know, I wrote something down, and I, one of the scripture references you mentioned, you know, I went up and I looked, looked that verse up, and wow, that was so meaningful to me. Are you fully engaging? Because you gotta engage, sitting and hearing is good, but it will not produce the level of growth that you desire. So engage, engage. And secondly, are you here regularly? One in four? I don't know. Finally this. Finally this. We as a family, we pray together. We as a family, we pray together. This is what God's people have done for a very long time. Genesis 4.26, we read, The people of God cried out to him. And we pray to God because we believe he's mighty to save. He's able to change the course of events and he responds to the prayers of his people. And we pray because we confess our sins individually and corporately. I love the story of five students who were, went to visit London, England, not Ontario, uh, and spend a day there and to hear C.H. Spurgeon preach at his famous church. It was probably the first megachurch in the Protestant world. And while they were standing around outside, they were, a man greeted them and said to these five young guys, they were five young men, and said, would you like to see the church? And they said, okay. And so he, 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 took, he said, now I'm going to show you the furnace room where all the heat comes from. And they were like, what in the world? We want to see the furnace room. And he took them down into the basement of the church and he opened a door onto a big room, room like this. And in that room, there were 700 people praying for the service that was going to take place in the next hour. Who do you think that man was? It was Spurgeon himself, who was a man that was burdened with depression and anxiety. He would be in bed for six months at a time where he couldn't even preach, and he would say, the dogs have gotten a hold of me. And he knew that he needed God's people to pray that his people lifting their voices together was so profoundly important. Let me share this and I'm done. What's the big idea that I want you to take away? Church and church family is profoundly important. So here's what I want you to remember in this week and the weeks ahead. I'm part of the West Park family. Okay, Family. See I put Periods in between. A little lady, a sweet little lady came to me years ago when I was preaching at a church, and I was talking about family, and she said, do you know what family means? I said, don't. And she told me this, forget about me, I love you. Oh, see that? That's like a Hallmark movie there, eh? Oh, But isn't that what it's, forget about me. It's not about me. I love you and and I want to be part of this family and I want to give my best and I want to encourage you and bless you and esteem you and serve you and help you and one day you're going to do the same for me, right? Amen. It's such a glorious thing. It's such a glorious thing. We own the franchise on unmetered, un... uh, You know... We just give away love, because that's what Jesus did. That's what we've studied, 10 weeks of Christ's love demonstrated in his supreme and sufficient sacrifice. How do we respond as a church family? Forget about me, I love you. I love you, let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father God, thank you for this church family. What a wonderful church this is. Lord, I know it's not a perfect church, there isn't any. But this is your bride here on Gainsborough Road in London, Ontario in 2023. And you are at work here and you love your bride. And may we love your bride and bless your bride and present your bride to you glorious on your day of return. May it be so, Lord Jesus. It's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen and amen.